Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that we humans are basically tribal animals that like hanging around with each other, and we like doing things together in groups. We like sewing circles, ball games, raves, watching television. We love eating together in circles. We are collaborative, cooperative as a species. But then you may ask if that's true, why is all of history written about the terrible wars and all the kills and how many tens and hundreds of millions of people we kill? And the answer is because a very small percentage of us perhaps less than 5% are predators. We see examples of this throughout all of history. Whether it's in, the, in ancient Egypt, whether it was when Caesar threw over the Republic, Napoleon, Mussolini, Hitler, wannabe, this Trump wants to be a dictator. It's a different mentality. So those of us who are in the 95 plus percent who are collaborative and cooperative, we need to stay awake and aware. I leave you on this topic with the words of Thomas Jefferson, one of my heroes. He said, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have the privilege of having as our guest, Dr. Ben Sessa. I'm holding up his book that just came out in a second edition. And right before the program, we were talking about a third edition, which is due, because his first edition came out in 2012. He was part of the start of the wave of the psychedelic renaissance. His second edition, the one that I just showed to you, came out in 2017, and he was mentioning to me right before the program started that he's going to be doing a third edition. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Ben. Thank you very much, Richard. Great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. One of the things that stood out for me in your book of the many very important things, I love your book, Ben. Let me just say that right out. I love the book. I think it's a great book. I, I, I think it's, it's a must read for anybody interested in psychedelics and even those who are not interested in psychedelics. But I'm a psychologist. So this, is what, caught, this is what caught my attention in addition to what we're going to be talking about. And I'm going to read it out loud. This is how Ben Sessa ends the book. He thanks his wife because of the amount of time that it took to write the book. And he ends with, look, it's finished. I'm back again. I think <laughs> that was his way of acknowledging. Tell us about that, Ben. I mean, that, it, it, how much? it's a lot of work, isn't it? Yeah, it's an immense amount of work, and it's a lot of work staring at a laptop. Um, and it does take one away from one's other activities, particularly family. So I think really important to acknowledge um, the the kindness and patience of those who love one to be um, patient and persevering and with with support 
when when academia takes us away so much from those important things. So yeah, it's I love writing, um, but it's it is arguably an excuse to disengage from social activities, isn't it? Yes, well, it's it's mostly a solo experience, although I'm about to launch a book for the first time with two other people. And you mentioned before the program that you're going to be doing your third edition with a with a partner or a, a colleague. So it'll be an interesting new experience for both of us. Ben, mm. in you, you talk in the book about how you and... Robin Carhart Harris, who I interviewed about a week ago, um, uh, as an aside, it's sort of a British invasion. Uh, Robin started it today, you and then uh, David Nutt's coming on uh, pretty soon as well, which I'm very pleased mm -hmm. about. Um, you mentioned in the book how, how you and Robin made this proposal for research. I think it was in about 2007. And you were turned down flat. It was like there was. Tell the story of that. Which uh, which one are you talking about here? This is Robin's study in with psilocybin. No, this was earlier than that. When you had met Robin and and uh, you put together some, I can find it in the book. You put together. Oh yeah, this was originally. This was originally for alcohol use disorder, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, I mean back then the. You know, Robin's study with psilocybin, which later became the all the imaging stuff that came out of Bristol and Imperial, was the first psychedelic research in the UK. And so there was there was no precedent for it since the 60s. Um, and it did t take a while to get ethics committees and boards on board with that sort of research. Of course, there's loads of it now, and it's very easy. Um, and people are familiar with accepting psychedelic protocols. But back then, in the UK at least, we were very much trailblazing. There was nobody else that was proposing anything like this. And it was quite some years later that I managed to get my MDMA study off the ground. Um, but Robin's work with psilocybin was absolutely paving the way. Um, it was a very exciting time when it was myself and Robin and David and Amanda at, in, at Bristol and then Imperial in those early days. And what what do you think happened over there that led to an opening up? Did the political situation change? Did the culture change? Was there a change in morality? I mean, basically, the two things that were sort of opposed to psychedelics were some combination of morality. You know, you're doing something bad. Uh, the same people who were sort of anti-alcohol in this country with the Women's Christian Temperance Union, only now it's something either further out called psychedelics, right? Either either that or a fear that people are going to think too much and then they'll lose political power. Isn't that... A, a, a... I think that... I think there's, there are multiple reasons why we're in this psychedelic renaissance and why this is now happening this second time around. Um, one is simply time. Um, a lot of water's gone under the bridge since the 1960s. Most people today don't even know who Timothy Leary was. I think the modern psychedelic researchers are steering away from the Leary-type narrative that psychedelics are going to save humanity and change the world. 
Um, they're not going to save humanity and change the world. Nothing is. Um, the world's way too complex for any single agent to do that. So the modern narrative, which is a much more sober and conservative, these medicines could be useful in certain parts of psychiatry, actually carries a lot more weight than this, you know, we'll all live in utopian dream if everyone just drops acid. So we don't have that kind of messianic narrative. And I think that's helped with this current renaissance. Another major reason for the Renaissance is changes in science. Using imaging techniques, we can produce beautiful, colorful pictures of the brain. We know a lot more about the receptor profiles and the neurobiology behind psychedelics. That gives them a much more sciencey edge, which has popular appeal. Um, the internet, connectivity, you know, there's far more happening today. People talk about the psychedelic 60s. Today is way more psychedelic than the 60s ever were. There's a fraction of the people were using psychedelics in the 60s. There is far more widespread recreational use of all psychedelics today than there ever was in the 60s. But also much greater connectivity, far more clubs, groups, societies, gatherings, festivals, conferences um, than ever before. Way, way eclipsing anything in the 60s. So, and the final reason, and I think the main reason why psychedelic research has picked up clinically is that it's driven by patient power, Richard. Patients themselves are demanding alternatives to the current status quo in terms of clinical, clinical um, treatments. And that they're searching for alternative types of medicine. And they're sick of substandard treatments for the last 50 years in medicine. And so they're naturally reaching out to other more esoteric subjects and psychedelics fits in really well with that. You were at the Psychedelic Science Conference in Denver last spring. I'm sorry we didn't meet in person. I think we were in the same room at the same time at Amanda's party. Um, outside the conference hall, I noticed a group of policemen and all around on the grass, with a lot of hippie-looking young people sitting around in gay clothing. So I walked over to the police officers, uh, and I introduced myself, and I asked them if I could ask a few questions, and they said, fine. And I asked them point blank, how did they feel about, and I pointed at the people on the grass and, and the building and so on, I said, how do you feel about this conference on, from what your perspective is, drugs, that we're calling psychedelic science. How do you feel about it? And the chief of the five of them looked at me and said, every one of us has had a family member fucked up by big pharma. If these people have something new to offer, we're gonna be very interested. And I thought that was quite an interesting statement from the, the head of the, the, the police group. It's basically what yeah, you're saying. Well demand from the public. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, like I said, there's a lack of safety and efficacy of traditional psychiatric treatments. And I think people also do feel as though they've been missold the effectiveness of traditional psychiatric drugs, um, which are not effective in many cases and are certainly overused. So um, that does all contribute to this groundswell of movement and enthusiasm for something alternative, and psychedelics fit so well into that. In, here in the States, it looks to me like most of the research is going on with psilocybin and the decriminalization that's occurred in Oregon, 
and in Colorado is a decriminalization of uh, vegetables that come from the ground and fungi. Um, LSD is clearly being left out of the picture. You, I, I don't see anywhere near as much research, at least that I'm aware of. Are you aware of LSD research? That's, there's a resurgence in that as well, either in England or maybe in the United States that I'm not aware of? Or do you see also um, that the preponderance of it is psilocybin? No, you're absolutely correct, Richard. The, there's been very little in the way of LSD research since this psychedelic renaissance of the last 20 years. Very little indeed. Um, people are choosing psilocybin. There's a number of reasons for that. I think the main reason is psilocybin carries less of a stigma. If you're trying to get a protocol past ethics and you, and you have those little letters LSD, the ethics committee jump out of their seats immediately. Whereas if you write the word psilocybin, most of them haven't even heard what that is. Um, and so it gets past ethics committees more easily. It doesn't have the social stigma that LSD has. Um, it's also arguable that psilocybin is shorter acting. Um, it's like six to eight hours as opposed to eight to 12 hours. Um, so that makes it a bit more clinically manageable um, in, in the clinical protocols that people are writing. Um, I think also the fact that it comes from a natural substance appeals to certain users as well over LSD. So you're absolutely correct. There has been, I think, maybe two studies that came out of Switzerland with LSD. Um, we did some brief LSD research in this country as well that's not found the light of day in terms of publication. But generally, it's few and far between. Probably under, under half a dozen LSD studies in the last 20 years. That's off the top of my head, I'm guessing whereas hundreds of psilocybin. So you're absolutely right in that observation. So you're working at the hospital as a psychiatrist, which you are, and you're told that you're going to get 50 patients to treat over a period of time. And you have to use one of two psychedelic medicines for this particular, uh, this particular time. But you can't use both and you can't mix them. You have to pick one. Of all the psychedelics, which one would you pick? Are you, I'd need to clarify what you mean by psychedelic. Are you referring only to classic psychedelics or are you expanding that? Because I would expand it to a whole host of things that are not traditionally classic psychedelics. I would certainly expand it to MDMA and ketamine. What else mm -hmm. are you thinking? Okay. Well, I mean, there's so many. There's Ibogaine, there's Salvia. Yes. I would argue THC with no balancing CBD is psychedelic. Fair so enough. There's whole, in large there's many, dose. Many, many. That's yes. right. So, um, so if we're allowed to expand beyond the classic psychedelics with your yes. thought experiment, MDMA Good. all the way. MDMA all the way. Okay. And if you could choose two, what would be your second? And you could either do them separately or you could mix them. Uh, psilocybin, yeah, psilocybin. And would you do it separately from the MDMA or would you do it concurrently at the same during the same session? For so there's been very few um, proposed or published mixed, mixed protocols in, in recent years. Um, the next step will be mixed protocols that involve taking psilocybin one week and MDMA another week. It's another step forward to propose a mixed protocol or combination protocol in which you take both drugs in the same sitting. 
Um, I think that's a valuable thing to explore. I think we can learn a lot about recreational use and how people use these recreationally. People combine MDMA with ketamine recreationally. They combine MDMA with psilocybin recreationally, and they report positive results. So I do think that we will move to the day where we do see these combination protocols, but to date there haven't been any. Um, I think it would be very interesting, and with no doubt such things will be submitted in coming years. Uh, just uh, to give you an update, mixing psilocybin with MDMA is getting more and more popular in the San Francisco Bay Area amongst guides. I've gotten that, uh, that feedback that that's going on. Um, yeah, I mean, they've traditionally be, always been mixed, you know. You go to a rave, go to a rave, as, as I've been going to for the last 30 years, you're going to see people who take MDMA and then ketamine or MDMA and then psilocybin or the other way around. Um, and of course, cannabis with all of those as well. Um, so there are very, I think the main point here in terms of recreational use, there are very few mono compound users, very few. Almost everybody that goes to raves and parties is a polydrug user. So they're all polydrug users, which means mm. we'll be looking forward to research on polydrugs and what their effects are. Now, we're, yeah. we're, we've been talking briefly about recreational use, and we've talked briefly about use as a medicine in treating people particularly with trauma, but with all sorts of uh, emotional upsets. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about the place of these psychedelics in creativity? And do we need books, more books on that? Could we have a book like yours that instead of focusing on the medicinal use, which you as a medical doctor, of course, do, focuses on all the uses by people who have used it to create something? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously my area of research and, and expertise is in clinical uses with clinical populations with mental health problems, but we mustn't restrict our our, our knowledge or, or research to only clinical populations. Um, we know that psychedelics used responsibly can be very beneficial for personal growth and development, for individuals, for couples, for families, for communities. And certainly in ceremonial use, this is the case. So, um, I mean, Albert Hoffman said in 2008, just before he died, he said, when the next psychedelic revolution comes, the doctors must not be allowed to run the show. So it was well recognized that psychedelics should not just be restricted to clinical populations. I can absolutely envisage the day where we have, um, at the same time, both clinics for um, patients with mental health problems, staffed by doctors and nurses and psychologists, but also wellness retreat centers for non-clinical populations to go for personal growth and development. Um, creativity is certainly one of those factors that's not not you wouldn't be taking psychedelics for creative for for clinical purposes, but for creativity. In the last 15, 20 years of psychedelic renaissance, there's been so many textbooks. There's hundreds of new textbooks on the field, which is fascinating and it's great fun. And I've written a fair few myself. But what there is a real lack of is fiction in psychedelic writing. Very few novels about psychedelics and psychedelic research. I have written a novel. It's called Patient Chemistry. And it um, fictionalizes uh, the use of psychedelic research 
um, for these two fictional characters. It's fantastic. And I'm looking for a, a agent and a publisher to bring this book into the public. So I wanted to put that to your um, esteemed listeners. If there's any agents or publishers out there who might be interested in perhaps one of the first books of fiction on psychedelics in modern times, drop me a line. And there's been a lot of interesting work done over the years on that. Um, Jim Fadiman did a very famous study um, back in the 60s with uh, mescaline, I think it was, and creativity. Um, and there has been a study with LSD in recent years in which I, I worked on, um, again, which hasn't been published yet, which was looking at LSD in, in fairly small doses for improving creativity. Um, I think one of the things about psychedelic drug use and creativity is I think it's a good primer to help a person be creative. I don't think that many people produce particularly good material when high on drugs. Um, you So even bands like the Grateful Dead or other rock bands, they will talk about their use of psychedelics in the writing process and in the creative process. But when it comes to performing on stage, although probably not the Grateful Dead, but plenty of other bands, um, <laughs> they, they, they're no good if they're high on stage. And similarly, visual artists will say the same. They'll say that their psychedelic experiences improve their creativity and inspire them. But when it comes to putting pen to paper, they're better off doing that sober. Um, and I think that that certainly is, is, is borne out. Personally, I can't bear psychedelic visionary art. I think most of it is, it's not my aesthetic. Pictures of airbrushed dolphins diving through rainbows with jaguars and condors in the background. It's cheesy as hell, if you ask me. But a lot of people in the psychedelic community like that stuff. Well, talking about the word cheesy, on page 90 of your book, you have a picture of a couple, and they're sitting there with a couple of brains. And the caption says something like, they remove the brains, and then they put them back in. I, I, I didn't know what to make of that. I mean, what kind of brains? And how do you put a brain back in? Or were you kidding? Two Norwegians. <laughs> two okay, no so this is Terry, Terry and Kreb. Uh, Terry Krebs and Powell, rather, Johansson. Yeah, I, that was obviously a, a ridiculous joke. They, they didn't remove any brains. Well, you, you, well, you sure brains. got my attention because you said here, it's so funny, I was laughing my head off. It says, which involved temporarily removing the brain of their subjects, examining them on the lab surface before reinstalling them into their subjects. And, and almost as if they're human subjects. Now, they, they wrote a fantastic paper. They, it was a very large population study with thousands of patients, um, which looked at the relative physical and mental health of psychedelic users yes. and found that they are, it's superior to the general population, suggesting that far from psychedelics being um, dangerous, it's in fact the opposite. People who regularly use psychedelics cautiously have better mental and physical health than non-users. So that was an interesting study. Okay, well, that leads me to another question, Ben. Mm -hmm. We've all seen, or at least within our subculture, we've all seen the pictures that Amanda published of um, the brain on LSD and a brain not on LSD, the MRI photos, the famous photos. Now, in those... On psilocybin, I think it was. Was it psilocybin? 
Is that the one with the circle and the connectivity between them? It's the one where the brain that's on psychedelic is all lit up orange, and the and the brain okay. that is not on psychedelics has some orange spots on it, but uh, but not a lot of them. Okay. And I well, my question, if you don't remember it, then maybe it isn't relevant because I was going to ask you, as a neuroscientist, what is this telling us? What is your interpretation? of seeing the brain ignited like this under the influence of this of this substance well what what we see with psychedelics classic psychedelics what they appear to do is temporarily increase network connectivity and activity in such a way as there are connections between regions of the brain that normally wouldn't be connected now this this is often termed like neuroplasticity or neuroflexibility and this Massive, um, highly chaotic connection um, is not a state you can live in the whole time. We need to have um, boundaries and rules and categories for our everyday life or we wouldn't be able to function. But for a few brief hours, the drug acts as a primer in which all these things are possible and everything's connected. Now, that's very beneficial if you, during that therapeutic window of opportunity, hit the patient with bespoke focused psychotherapy. So in a way, the drug just acts as a primer to put the brain into this neuroplastic state, but it's the psychotherapy that you do in and around that state that has the clinical value. Ben, some people have found it helpful to differentiate the therapy that goes on with lower doses than higher doses referring to the lower dose as psycholytic therapy and the higher dose as psychedelic therapy. Uh, do mm -hmm. you find that a handy uh, differentiation? Yeah, and I think it's, it's a dose-dependent issue, Richard. So if you take a low dose of psilocybin, like 5, 10, 15 milligrams, or a low dose of LSD, say 25, 50, up to 75 micrograms, you could potentially do talk therapy in that state. Psycholytic means mind loosening. So the mind is looser, it frees you up, it reduces inhibitions, and you can do psychotherapy in that low-dose state. But if you take a high dose of psilocybin, 25, 30 milligrams, or LSD, 150, 200, whatever, you, you have a mind-blowing mystical-type experience, which is very psychedelic and full of material, but most people can't really engage in psychotherapy in that state. So the, the, the difference between, say, psycholytic and psychedelic in this context is around dose, really, and the extent to which you can do talk therapy or not on that dose. And, and both appear to be helpful. And, and both appear to be helpful. But there's... Yeah, and if you look at the history and the work that Ronald Sanderson was doing in the 50s in the UK, he was using psycholytic doses on a more frequent basis. So he would give doses of 25, 50, maximum 75 micrograms to his patients undergoing weekly psychoanalysis to sort of boost the psychoanalysis and do talk therapy in that drug state. Whereas the psycholytic psychotherapy school that was more popular in the States would give a single high dose, 200, 300, 400 microgram dose, have this mind-blowing mystical experience with very little psychotherapy at the time, and then you spend the weeks afterwards unpackaging and integrating that, that single high-dose experience. So they're just two different forms of psychotherapy. 
Now, there's a third form, if you will. Jim Fadiman, as you know, has been collecting hundreds, if not thousands, of stories from people who are microdosing. And my question for you is, given the positive effects that you're talking about from the psychedelics and this research indicating that people function even better who have taken the psychedelics regularly, could an argument be made for microdosing on a schedule very regularly, almost in the same way that the pharmaceutical companies have people taking a pill once a day or once every second day? It's mostly once a day they like to sell them. Yeah. So I have, I have three opinions about microdosing. And the last thing I want to do is to um, be seen at loggerheads with the likes of Jim or Paul, who are both good friends and, and firm believes in microdosing. The first reason I'm not a big fan of microdosing is there isn't a huge amount of um, randomized control data around whether or not it's working. And indeed, the two studies that have been shown suggest that it's a placebo or expectancy effect more than a drug effect. In other words, if you believe you're on a microdose, you're going to do well from it and you're going to report positively. If you don't think you are on a microdose and you're not having any drug, even if you are given one, you'll report that you didn't get anything from that. So it does appear to be a strong expectancy effect. The second reason that I'm not a big fan of microdosing is clinically I've come across too many people who are not microdosing, they're threshold dosing. Um, people come up to me at conferences and say, hey, Ben, I'm on a wicked microdose buzz today. Well, if you're on a buzz, you're not on a microdose, you're threshold dosing. And if you threshold dose psychedelics every day for weeks and months on end, you tend to go a bit loopy. So most a lot of people are not microdosing. They're, they're, they're taking a threshold dose on a regular basis, which isn't great for you. The third reason that I'm not a big fan of microdosing is a little bit like you alluded to in the question. Um, I like psychedelics because they get us off daily maintenance drugs. I like the fact that you just have to take this psychedelic, whether it's MDMA, ketamine, LSD, psilocybin, once, twice, three times as part of a course of psychotherapy, and then you're off maintenance daily drugs. If you're going to take psychedelics every day for weeks, months, years, decades, you may as well be on Prozac. Now, that's not entirely true, and no. they are arguably safer, safer than SSRIs. But do you see the point? I like psychedelics because they're not maintenance drugs. Um, so I, but, the, but the thing about the caveat there about microdosing is if you do it and you do it properly, you will report positive benefits. Because if you believe in it, it'll work for you. Um, and that's very strongly demonstrated. But then so does crystal healing, Jesus and the Bible, if you believe in that. That's so, right. You know, it, it's a positive thing. If it gives you a personal sense of meaning and you believe it's enhancing your connectivity and your creativity, great, carry on doing it. Let's talk about threshold dosing. Mm -hmm. uh, now, Jim, Jim has, has uh, put forth that if a person takes two days off in between doses, the, neurotra yeah. the neurotransmitters have a chance to recharge and they're ready. So a person could take a, three, a threshold dose on a Monday, take Tuesday and Wednesday off, and then take another threshold dose on Thursday or Friday, in other words, twice a week. W would that be 
enough to get them into the category of those that you cited in that study that had a, a more effective functioning baseline than people who were not taking the psychedelics. I mean, I think if you're threshold dosing psychedelics twice a week, good luck to you. I don't see how that behavior will make you more connected with others. My sense is that will move you away from connection with others and towards an insular sense of self. But, you know, whatever you think floats your boat. Um, <laughs> I think psychedelics are the sort of thing that are best done infrequently. Um, you know, a heavy user of LSD might be twice a year. A lot of people take these once or twice a year, special occasions when mushrooms are in season, New Year's, a birthday, an anniversary, a particular festival. I think if you're taking psychedelics at a threshold dose very regularly, well, this is just my anecdotal experience of people I've seen. I think they drift away from being agents that create connection and they move towards an insular sense of self that is not connected. These are not the sorts of drugs you need to take twice a week. Um, not, they're, not, they're not like that. They're not like alcohol or opiates or cocaine where you know regular dosing sort of fits with that pattern of use. These are the sorts of drugs that have much greater meaning and benefit when used sporadically and infrequently. Um, unless everyone everywhere is doing it. Otherwise, you just start to become the odd one out as opposed to more being more connected. And what are your thoughts in the same regard then about frequency of MDMA, which in distinction from the psychedelics, which tend to be more intellectual or cognitive, MDMA is more, if you will, emotional or heartful and brings you closer um, to people, not further away. Yeah, so... I mean, you were right in that original statement, what Jim said that, you know, if you use psychedelics every day, you do, the, the receptors do downregulate and they stop being effective. You need to have a break of at least a week in between or four days, maybe. Um, and M MDMA is similar. You can't just use MDMA every day. After about two or three days, it just stops working. Um, I, I think, again, I think if you're using MDMA every twice a week or even every week, you start becoming not dependent upon it in a physical dependence way, but it becomes habitual and you start moving towards not being able to have fun or enjoy yourself without it. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's healthy. Um, you know, I don't want to put any kind of moralistic judgment on this. People can do what the hell they want. I don't care. But like, um, I think again, these things just seem to be more effective and beneficial when they are used sparingly, special occasions, not, not every week. It well, just, I think it's it's not even about the drugs. It's just boring activity. You know, broaden your life. Do some do something else this weekend. Well, you're echoing what Rick Doblin and Michael Midhoffer say about MDMA. I think they think like maybe once every three or four months is plenty. Um, mm. At the same time, I'm collecting data on couples who use it every single week and have been for five and 10 years, maybe averaging at least close to three times a month for five to 10 years. And so far, I mean, I don't have a large N, but the results 
are remarkable. I'm seeing things like connecting with people who are estranged in the family, people who never talk to each other, getting back and talking to each other, people who didn't talk about emotions, getting mm -hmm. comfortable talking about. And this is without a therapist, by the way. These are people yeah. self-experimenting. Um, well, that sounds like fascinating data. That does sound really interesting. I would love to see more doesn't about it? that. Actually, I've, I'm not sure if you may know, you know Alan Ajaya, don't you? No. Okay. Alan Ajaya is a uh, psychologist in Wisconsin, and um, he's in my book, Psychedelic Wisdom, which I want to mention to you because it fits in with something that you're proposing for us or what you think is necessary having to do with public relations. Alan Ajaya um, has, is, is a Buddhist priest and a doctor of clinical psychology. He's written quite yeah. a few books. He's taken LSD over 900 times. And, okay. and I said to him, Alan, he's now close to 80 or 80. I said, Alan, are you, have you had enough? He said, oh, no. I said, tell me about it. He said, there's always more to learn. It was quite interesting. Over 900. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And how many people have had over 900 drinks of alcohol? Probably most of us. So, <laughs> like, um, it's. That's uh, very good. It seems it seems like an unusual thing to do with LSD, but it's yes. a lot less toxic than alcohol, isn't it? Well, that that's what's leading me into my next uh, area for us to talk about. Okay. In in this country, we we scare people, politicians and the media, scare people by citing data in a certain way that focuses on the terrifying acts, uh, aspects of it. So, for yeah. example, we have 32,000 homicides in the United States every year uh, with, with firearms. Yeah. And that's the number that's thrown out, which is a frightening number to the public. The number yeah. that's not thrown, what's not told to the public is that half of those are suicides Almost 40% of the other half are in the family. And when you run the numbers for 330 million people, your chances of getting shot in the United States are 1 in 25,000. Well, if it was put forth to the public that, you know, your chances of getting shot in the United States are less than one, the one in 25,000. In other words, you have 24,999 chances out of 25,000 that you'll never get shot. It creates a different feeling because when I cite these statistics to people and I say, would you do a surgery that would save your life if there was a one in 25,000 chance that the surgery would fail? Everybody says yes. Yeah, you, well, you, it's that's interesting now, way of looking at it, Richard. So what and, I'm I'm about to ask you, let me finish. I'm about to ask you, Ben, is can you cite 
the adverse effects of some of these psychedelics in the reverse. Your chances of nothing of not dying with these psychedelics rather than your chances of dying. Or do both. In other words, give us both sides. That's what would be even better. Give us both sides of the picture because that's one of the things that's yeah. used to scare the public. Am I going to die from these things? Can I smoke enough marijuana until it kills me? If I take psilocybin and I accidentally take too much, am I going to end up dead? No. Okay. Well, I can talk to you about the, the prevalence of morbidity or mortality of psychedelics. Absolutely. Um, or the safety of psychedelics is another way of say, stating the yes. same thing. Yes. Um, can I make a comment about American gun culture first? Absolutely. I don't think America needs any further encouragement about the hideous medieval situation in which high-grade military machinery is in the hands of the general public. No other mm. country on earth is as bad. It's absurd. Um, anyway. Uh, Thank you. In terms of safety of psychedelics, um, you know, the rest of the world thinks America's crazy for this. They, they, there's no respect whatsoever for American gun laws. But I suppose within most straight-thinking American people, it's probably the same, isn't it? Ben, um, Ben, I'm, I'm here to say out loud, what other country does not have universal health care like the United States? <laughs> Do you know, I read yesterday that Malawi has a better public health care system than America. And Malawi is in one of the top five poorest countries in the world. You're, you're, you're better off getting sick in Malawi than you are in America. Our, um, our country, Ben, since we're on that topic, our country is in a slide. When you look at where we are in education, we used to be the number one in the world. I think we're down at number 18. We have 60% of our country right now. If they lose their job, they'll be out on the street in three weeks. 60%. 70, yeah, 70, 72% of our country, Ben, are obese or overweight. Yeah. Uh, Johns Hop it's very worrying, isn't it? Johns Hopkins reports that between 30 and 40% of the United States are depressed or anxious, suffer, suffering from anxiety or depression. Mm. And that's in addition. I hope, that there's, I hope there's a reawakening of all these things. Um, you know, people are well aware of this data now, aren't they? Um, I don't know if we are or not, Ben. Beca because I hope America picks itself up again. I hope we do, too. But you know history as well as I. When the public is downtrodden, 60% on one on the edge financially obese overweight anxious and depressed they're ripe for a dictator and we've got a dict yeah. and we have a dictator wannabe that is frothing at the mouth to take the controls yeah yeah that's what's good happening luck there, then good luck there get to the high ground and party if i was you but um <laughs> I like in terms of Shall I go back to the safety of psychedelics? I, I, I would love, um, love to hear it that way. The safety of psychedelics. And then, yeah. If you, yeah. And the morbidity, because, um, if you want. And the morbidity. Okay. Morbidity is really simple. Classic psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD are virtually inert physiologically. They do virtually nothing to the body. Slight rise in, in uh, blood pressure and heart rate, which is probably anxiety related, not pharmacologically related. So LSD and psilocybin, 
zero toxicity risk. Indeed, to overdose on psilocybin mushrooms, you would need to eat 17 kilograms of flesh <laughs> mushrooms, which is 85 supermarket boxes. So um, the physical toxicity risks for classic psychedelics is virtually zero. And there have been virtually zero recorded deaths ever in history from physiological toxicity from classic psychedelics. Um, now, MDMA has a slightly higher toll on the body. It does raise blood pressure, temperature, and heart rate um, briefly for about four to six hours. Then it comes back down again. Um, so it does have a slightly higher toll on the body. And there are more recorded fatalities from MDMA poisoning than there are classic psychedelics. But it's still very, very low. So in the UK, maybe five to ten per year, um, people can die from hyperthermia, hyponatremia. But all of those things are easily managed in the clinical setting um, You, in terms of fluid balance and exercise and temperature. So there's certainly no risk in a clinical setting. Um, and also when people use MDMA recreationally in the form of ecstasy, God knows what they're taking. It's usually not MDMA when you do the toxicology tests. So physiologically, the psychedelics are very, very safe drugs. And that's, a, that's not a biased statement. That's an evidence-based statement. They are not on the radar for drug services, MDMA and psilocybin. Um, they're, not, they're not on the radar for addiction. They don't have typical drug-seeking behavior harms. I worked in, in a community setting for addictions for 12 years. Not a single case of MDMA or psilocybin addiction came through the door in that time. Nobody breaks into your house to steal your TV to get their next magic mushroom fix. <laughs> they're just not on the radar for addiction services. Now, um, the one drug that stands alone in psychedelics that is considerably more harmful is ketamine. Ketamine does indeed have a strong addiction potential if used very frequently in a recreational setting. And it also has a physical harm potential. It causes inflammation throughout the whole urinary tract from the kidneys, down the ureters, to the bladder, down the urethra, um, all of which heals by scarring and is irreversible. Now, this doesn't happen in clinical protocols with ketamine, where we're using moderate doses spaced several weeks apart. Um, where, but when we're, if you take regular recreational ketamine for a long period of time, you certainly have both addiction and physiological risks associated with it. But the MDMA and psilocybin just are not, they're just not highly dangerous drugs. Now, we talk about harms that occur when on drugs, like falling down the stairs or jumping out of a window or driving. But those are not drug harms. Those are behavioral harms because you're on the drug. Um, so we have to separate those out. And of course, the most important thing about all of this discussion around safety is in a clinical setting with screened patients, having monitored guided sessions, you can reduce all of these harms down to virtually zero. So they are very, very safe drugs to use. And I do, you know, incidentally, considerably safer than the drugs I can quite happily give to psychiatric patients on a day-to-day -day basis. So um, when we talk about harms or safety, in medicine, we don't use words like safe or dangerous because they're meaningless concepts. You know, a car's safe, a knife's dangerous. Depends. I mean, depends what you do with them, doesn't it? Um, you know, try cutting a loaf of bread without a knife because it's dangerous. You know, it's absurd. So we don't use words like safe and dangerous. They're too blunt. We say, does this treatment in this patient at this point satisfy the risk-benefit analysis in the favor of benefit over risk? That's what we do with every medical intervention from sticking plasters to cancer chemotherapy. 
All medical interventions have both risks and benefits. And we weigh up that analysis of risks versus benefits. Now, when you do that with psychedelics, whether MDMA, psilocybin, or indeed ketamine, they come out very strongly in the favor of benefit over risk. So, um, yeah, extremely safe. Extremely safe. In your book, you have a picture of two scientists sitting with a subject who's in a chair and he's being injected with DMT. Now, that subject looks very suspiciously like uh, Dr. Ben Sessa. That is Dr. Ben Sessa. Oh, okay. So was Dr. Ben Sessa getting injected with DMT? Yeah, so I am in a very fortunate position, Richard, in that unlike, I don't know anyone else who can say this, I can, as a medical doctor, I can say on the record that I've had MDMA, psilocybin, DMT, ketamine, and LSD. All of those have been delivered in legal clinical or uh, legal research settings. So I've participated in studies with all five of those drugs. And I can, on the record, say I've had all those drugs. Um, I don't know anyone else that has done all of those studies. I mean, there's some people who've done one or two of them or three of them, but to have participated in studies for all five of those means I can on the record state that I have indeed had intravenous psilocybin, intravenous LSD, intravenous ketamine, intravenous DMT, and oral, oral MDMA, all of them legally. And how would you rank those five in terms of personal benefit on the big picture? Personal benefit defined as enhancing your life in some way that no, that you notice? Um, oh, that's a very good question. I mean, personal idiosyncratic preference, yes. which is just aesthetic. I'm not a huge fan of ketamine. Um, I find it rather dark and spooky and eerie. Um, Psilocybin, LSD are fascinating compounds to do sparingly for some incredible peak experience, but not too often. Um, DMT, similarly, is the sort of thing that you probably don't need to do lots. It's it's about glimpsing those 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 aspects of self because they're all internal experiences. They're not external experiences. Um, um, but MDMA is certainly my preference because as a clinical tool. It doesn't have that mind-blowing peak experience, mystical experience that classic psychedelics has. But trust me, as a trauma therapist, it is no less powerful. It is much more tolerable, much easier to take. You don't really have a bad trip with MDMA. It either works or it doesn't. It's very tolerable and easy to manage, yet no less powerful when it comes to its tool, uh, to, it, to it becoming a tool as an adjunct to psychotherapy. It's immensely powerful in that role but also very easy to, to tolerate as a patient. So um, I think that makes it superior if it, if it was a competition. As I said before, it would be MDMA all the way in terms of choice um, as a clinical tool. I've also uh, had the experience of each of these five substances, though not in the way that you have, which is much more fortunate, and I agree with you, you're a rare person. Uh, but I've had all five uh, going back 50, 60 years uh, at this point. And 
I agree with you 100% on four of the five. I agree with you on the benefits of the LSD and the psilocybin. Ketamine seems dark to me also. Of course, it's an anesthetic, and I'm interested in expansion, not contraction, and I don't want to go to sleep. Um, and I think MDMA, from the first time, oh, we're getting a signal from our producer. We're not getting a signal. Okay, he came on. Yeah, we got a five signal. We got a five oh, signal. Oh, maybe it's five minutes to the end of the hour. Um, I was fortunate enough to be given MDMA in my doctor's, my uh, therapist's office while it was still legal. So he was able to get it legally. It was clean. He used it on me. Uh, it was life-changing uh, and remarkable. The only one we sort of disagree on is DMT. I see DMT from what my experience with it is, is sort of like, okay, you get the transcendence, but where's the meat and the potatoes? I mean, what do I, I take home Richard. other than the fact that I had a transcendent experience? So if you're looking for a fast transcendent experience, the last 15, 20 minutes, sure, go for it. But as a therapist, I wouldn't know how to use it. Okay. Uh, uh, terrific. Um, <clears throat> there has been talk in this country, which I know you're aware of, of putting uh, LSD in the water supply. And you mentioned in your book that it wouldn't work because uh, public water supplies are chlorinated and the chlorine would neutralize the LSD. Um, if that's the case, then why, when we take LSD orally, doesn't the stomach acid, which is hydrochloric acid, neutralize the LSD? That's a really interesting point, Richard. Um, I don't think this, yeah, it's an interesting point. I think the point about the water supply adulteration with LSD is a classic psychedelic urban myth. LSD is quite volatile. Um, and you would need to have truckloads pouring into a reservoir to, to create enough of a dose to be felt, um, by drinking out of a tap. Also, any 10% of the water that comes out of a tap is, is, is drunk. Most of it's used for other purposes. Um, so the idea of uh, poisoning an entire town with LSD is just not going to happen. The one place where it might work is in closed systems, like, say, a ship, um, which has a closed system, smaller water mm, reservoir. Mm -hmm. that, that sort of a, a ship or but mm -hmm. anything on the national mains for water supply mm -hmm. is just not going to happen with LSD um, uh, adulteration. The question about why do we not neutralize it in the stomach? I don't know. That's a good one. I mean, I think... The answer is you do lose a lot of the potency of LSD when you take it orally. That's why when we use it in research, we use intravenous because you get full mm -hmm. delivery of the drug to the brain exactly. without any of that loss in the stomach or the gut. Yes. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so you do lose a lot. Um, but LSD is vol very volatile. If you dip a sheet of LSD blotter when you're, when you're making blotter and you say you calculated it, say, 300 micrograms a tab, by the time it's dried, it's 150 micrograms of tab because it's very volatile indeed. Um, it doesn't it doesn't preserve very well LSD. You make an important point in your book about the future of these psychedelics in medicine, I would add in creativity as well. And the point is that what it's going to take is money the money to do the research and how this whole area has been a stepchild 
of science and medicine. And you're right. Just as chemical dependence has been a stepchild of psychotherapy, there are these areas that are sort of looked down upon. Here in the United States, Ben, there are three areas which if you study as an academician, which is how I started uh, teaching at the University of Michigan, um, there are three areas which are career killers. Hypnosis, sexuality, and psychedelics, but now psychedelics is no longer a career killer. But but uh, the other two are still hypnosis and sexuality are career killers. So you mention in your book, it's going to take money, and the way to get the money is good through public relations, which I totally agree with. In fact, I did a whole book called Psychedelic Wisdom, which contains 1,500 years of prominent people outing themselves just in the way you're asking us to do. They're telling the story of 30 to 40 years of, of uh, self-experimentation. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we do that, Ben? I mean, is, are there organizations in England that are taking you seriously enough that they're considering public relations manifestos, public yeah, relations? I think... I think- I think there are. And I think that the real challenge for psychedelics going forward, in some ways, we don't need any more psychedelic research. We know they work. We know they're safe. We know they're efficacious. We know they work on multiple patient indications. Um, We don't really need any more research. What we need is good PR, good advertising, politicians and dissemination of this idea. Um, We need psychedelics in free public health care. We have failed the psychedelic renaissance if all we've got after all these years of millions of dollars pouring into the industry in the last five years, if all we've got is a bunch of high-end, glamorous, exotic retreats in Costa Rica and Jamaica and Holland for very rich tech hippies. We have failed if that's all we've achieved. These, These drugs need to be free, public access for everybody. Then we can make a serious dent in the massive international psychiatric epidemic of mental illness that is upon the world. They can make a dent on that prevalence. They can revolutionize public health services in terms of mental health care, but they need to be accessible to all. They should not be charged. Now, it doesn't make sense because they also make economic sense. They're not only the right moral, ethical and clinical thing to do. They're also the right financial thing to do. I often say in my talks, there's nothing more expensive than the untreated psychiatric patient. If you cut corners by not adequately treating them early in life, um, they go on to they don't work. They want disability benefits. They need new legs. They need new livers. They offend. They go to prison. Their children are taken away by the family courts. All of the millions of dollars of costs that go with substandard psychiatric treatment. Whereas if you get them up front in their 20s at the when their their trauma is relatively fresh in their minds and you treat them effectively with psychedelic medicine, yes, it's expensive. Yes, it's intensive upfront piece of work, but that's like surgery. You know, you don't not do mending a broken leg because it's expensive. You don't say, I'm not going to pay 15 grand to have that femur, fractured femur mended. I'm going to hobble around on a broken leg and take painkillers the rest of my life. You don't say that. You find the money to mend a broken leg because that's what you have to do. That's how we should be approaching mental illness. We should not be looking at it as a palliative care subject that just keeps people 
managed in their symptoms for the next 60, 70 years of their life because we don't want to spend the money up front in an effective treatment that will cure them and get them better. So psychedelic therapy is turning on its head this maintenance model of psychedelic of psychiatric care that we've had for the last 50 years, which the pharma industry are quite happy with because it provides regular daily use of maintenance drugs. Psychedelics are a marketing nightmare for the pharma industry. Why would they want to put $100 million worth of R&D research into a drug that you only take three times that's <laughs> off patent? You know, it's a marketing nightmare. We need to find a way to make this available to patients for free, and it would pull the rug out from under traditional pharmaceutical services to a large extent. Not entirely. I'm not an anti-psychiatrist. There is a place for SSRIs and mood stabilizers and all the other drugs. But they're certainly overused and they're certainly ineffective in many, many people. So I think psychedelics, that is the challenge for the future. We don't need any more research. We know they all work. We just need to get these into public health care so they're accessible to all. Then we can really make a meaningful dent on, on, the, on public health. I think it's a perfect way to end our interview that was so beautifully said. Thank you, Dr. Ben Sessa, for being with us today. Thank you, Richard. It's a great pleasure to be here. And thank you all, gentle listeners, for being with us today on this broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics with our very distinguished guest, Dr. Ben Sessa from England. I remind you that all of our programs are open source. That means no charge, no hidden costs, no costs. Go to mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. You can listen to this interview with Dr. Ben Sessa. I hope you'll buy his book, The Psychedelic Renaissance. It's worth reading, and I look forward to seeing you again. Remember, every Tuesday at 9 o'clock is a new program. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.